As much as the climate crisis is the greatest threat we've ever faced, it's also the biggest opportunity. Welcome back to the DWD podcast, a podcast focused on ending polarization through conversation. This week, we're joined by Clover Hogan. Clover, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So Clover, you're an environmental activist, consultant, turned podcaster and educator. And I want to start the conversation off 10 years ago when everything kind of started for you. How did you get your first activism role? What kickstarted it and how did you first get involved? Awesome introduction. Great question. Um, I need to tow you around so you can do my bio for me. Um, So I grew up in Australia's tropical North Queensland. Uh, As I often say, I literally was fishing frogs out of the toilet and dodging snakes that hung from the ceiling. Um, So for me, nature was never an other. You know, it was a really integral part of my lived experience. Um, And I have a dad who's a botanist. My mom's a personal development coach. So in many ways, I was kind of the lab experiment of those two things combined. Um, But the real tipping point and the catalyst for me was when I was 11 years old and started watching documentaries. Uh, So I watched The Cove. I watched Food Inc. and Inconvenient Truth. And I went from having this very sheltered reality bubble to suddenly it being burst and realizing the extent of exploitation, the extent of destruction of the environmental world. Um, and it filled me with a pretty overwhelming sense of despair um, and frustration and um, this real kind of cognitive dissonance. You know, when I learned about the climate crisis, when I learned that this was an existential threat, like nothing we'd ever seen before that would be very directly affecting, you know, all of our lives. I was like, why aren't we talking about this at the dinner table, right? Like, why aren't our leaders talking about this? Why are they, you know, talking about petty issues or vested interests? You know, why aren't we talking about the things that really matter? So I had a lot of respect um, for people amidst that kind of despair um, who were shining light on the problems, right? Who are communicating and using their skills to raise awareness around the world. And so I looked to those journalists, those filmmakers, and decided that I wanted to spend the rest of my life being a voice for the voiceless. And I wanted to commit myself to this. So with all of the gusto that an 11 year old has, um, I shared this dream with my parents and within a couple of years had um, coerced them into leaving Australia so that I could move to Indonesia and go to school in the jungle at a place called the Green School. Um, Green School is wallless bamboo classrooms (laughs) in the middle of the jungle and the kind of antithesis of the uh, standardized education system. It's really really about learning by doing. So instead of, um, you know, studying math from a textbook, we would go down to the local river, design a bridge, build that bridge with the community, then turn it into a social enterprise. So instead of asking young people to pursue careers we have no love for, it's about asking young people which problems in the world they want to solve. Um, When I was 16, I realized what that problem was. So by that point, I had been working within the United Nations. I'd been lobbying stuffy dudes in suits into waking up (laughs) to the urgency of the challenges. Um, And then mid-conversation at COP21, which is this Paris Agreement uh, for climate and a very, very historical moment in, in rallying world leaders together, I was at an event, a sustainability event, that was sponsored by Coca-Cola and BMW. It was my first experience of true greenwashing, right? So when companies kind of pretend to do the right thing when they have no real interest in solving the challenges. I was there having a conversation with one of these kind of bureaucrats who kept tiptoeing around the issues when for the first time in my career as an activist, 
I felt this incredible overwhelm and not just despair, not just anger, but a unique feeling, which was the sense of powerlessness. So I was hyper aware of being in the belly of the beast, right? And I was hyper aware of my own smallness in the face of these challenges. And I had this aha moment. You know, by that point, I'd already been working in the climate space. I'd met the technologists and the scientists and the experts. And I'd realized that, you know, while we had the solutions for the climate crisis and had done so for a number of decades, you know, the thing that we were missing was this mobilization of mindsets. And I realized that so many people, and this was my experience as I started working in classrooms, but also in boardrooms of Fortune 500 companies, this realization that we all subscribe to stories that limit our potential and that stop us from taking action on the issues that we care about. So at that point, at 16, it became my kind of obsession to understand the psychology of agency and why we don't take action when there is a great existential threat like the climate crisis. So that's kind of been where um, my my work has taken me over the past few years. Um, And we've come up with some very, very interesting findings along the way. I love that. And I'm sure we're going to dive into it as well. I will note just before Joey hops into another question that our start, we're we're both plant-based, or at least we try to be, and our start was actually also because of a documentary called What the Health, if you've ever watched that. Yeah, I know it well. I know it well. Exactly. So it was fantastic. That's really cool to hear. Joey, kick it off. It's it's beautiful to to hear that you got your start so early on. It it seems like the younger generation is now trying to convince the older generations that climate change is such an important topic. It it, it kind of flips the education system on its head, you know, like the older generation teaching the younger. Now it's sort of vice versa in some situations. But uh, that's a bit of a tangent. (laughs) But um, yeah, so one of our main focuses on this podcast is polarization. Everything around us seems to be getting more and more polarized, based more on partisan, more and more on partisan politics. In your opinion, why do you think that climate change is such a polarizing topic? Oof, great question. So this is a loaded question because every day I see that same polarization that you talk about in so many different manifestations. Um, One form of polarization that I've become hyper aware of working in the kind of intersection between, you know, youth leadership and climate activism, working with businesses is this intergenerational polarization. Um, And you see it often in the wake of protest, right? Young people are pushing for demands. They're, you know, showing up, they're loud, they're vocal, they're passionate. And yet in the wake of protest comes this powerlessness when those demands are not met by those who generally are quite a few years older and they're in another generation altogether. And so this real kind of finger pointing happens. You know, young people are pointing to the older generation saying, you know, how have you betrayed us? How have you let us down in this way? And older generations are turning around and saying, well, you know, you're too naive. You don't understand how the real world works, whatever. Um, And it's really, really important that we begin to break down this siloing, right? And this separation, because you also see it in, you see how that same polarization within the environmental space has prevented us from taking um, bigger steps, right? Um, I'm most curious about how to facilitate a conversation between, you know, the protester gluing themselves to the shell building and the person in the C-suite, right, who's making the big decisions. If you want to get kind of uh, psychological about it, polarization happens when we other 
someone else, right? Polarization happens when there is a breakdown in communication, when you project onto someone something that you're maybe not willing to kind of own up to in yourself. So we see a lot of resentment um, in the environmental space um, and people who are fighting for a lot of these issues because they're unable to empathize with the people who are in those perceived positions of power um, with the decisions that they're having to make, the responsibility that they hold. And that's why it's been really powerful as a young climate activist to occupy those spaces and to have those conversations with, you know, boardroom executives, because for a long time, I also subscribed to this kind of othering, right? It was very much coming at this from an us versus them mentality. And that was built on the belief system that they were fundamentally different from me, right? And I couldn't empathize with their situation. I didn't understand why they were making the decisions that they were, why they weren't waking up to the urgency of these challenges. And I thought that it was coming from a place of selfishness or greed or any of these, you know, kind of uh, very ego-based uh, emotions. And yet when I began to have those conversations, I realized that the same stories I was hearing working with 11-year-olds about being too small to make a difference, of feeling disempowered, um, of you know the system being too broken to create meaningful change. I heard those same stories working with the chief executives of some of the world's largest multinationals. And so I realized that as much as we other, you know, and as much as we fall into these kind of camps and these labels and we wear them like armor, in fact, we're all very much the same at the end of the day. We have the same insecurities. We have the same care um, for wanting to look after our children, the same base values. Um, and yet what gets in the way are the different kind of labels that we assume. So I think a lot of the polarization comes from that that wearing of those labels like armor and the inability to look beyond that, um, to come from a place of finding common ground rather than focusing uh, in an isolated way on what makes us different and championing that kind of diversity. So, you know, we've seen a lot of success in this kind of intergenerational exchange, right? When you just sit down and have conversations with people who come from different lived experiences, who are older, and you don't come from a place of trying to push your agenda, but to understand where that person is coming from. I think that's so spot on and so well said and, and very succinct because the, the aspect of this day and age that concerns me so much is how we have such an inability to empathize and connect with people, even though we have the tools to connect better than ever before. So to dive a little bit deeper into this conversation, what kind of tools have you been using or strategies when you do go about having those hard conversations? What is most effective? Yeah, so we kind of touched on this uh, before we started recording, which is that there's obviously this very (laughs) interesting questionable cancel culture, right? Um, Which feeds into um, a culture of having to be perfect all the time. And you see this a lot in the environmental space. It's like this real kind of like puritanism around having to do all of the things. And if you aren't doing all of the things, then you're doing something wrong. And it, it's very black and white and it's very um, isolating, I suppose. And I know that a lot of, you know, young people don't take action on the issues they care about for fear of judgment from their peers, you know, if they do have some of those inconsistencies or are perceived as being hypocritical. And so one of the things that I've really owned um, in my own kind of path as an activist is actually 
not celebrating those inconsistencies, but recognizing that they're part of a much bigger problem, right? The climate crisis is the symptom of broken systems from, you know, the clothes on my back to the food in my fridge or how I get around the city. And so each and every one of us, by the nature of existing in the 21st century, is contributing to this challenge. Um, That makes it super unique. And it also means that it's impossible to do all of the things and tick all of the boxes. Now, a lot of um, executives, a lot of people who come from, you know, outside this kind of uh, activism world are hyper aware um, of their own inconsistencies and are hyper aware of the fact that they might be othered um, because they're in a particular position. And so the way we've been able to um, facilitate some of these conversations is to start from a place of vulnerability and to start from a place not of, okay, I'm on my mighty high ground and this real kind of savior complex, um, but to start from a baseline of I'm inconsistent, right? I care really deeply about these problems, but I make mistakes, right? And um, I wish I could do all of the things, but I don't. And when you open up in that way, and you have the, the kind of courage um, to not feel that you need to hold up this facade of being perfect and you don't come from a place of pointing out but from a place of pointing in and, like, recognising your own fallibility and your own inconsistencies, it creates the spaces for other people to also be vulnerable in some of those feelings and for executives, for leaders to look at themselves and rather than pushing this kind of leadership of having to be perfect and polished all the time and have all of the answers, um, look at themselves and say, oh, okay, wow, I'm maybe not showing up in a role that is consistent with my values and I want to be able to dive into that a little deeper. So I think any conversation has to come from a place of, you know, what can I learn from this interaction and how can I own, you know, my own inconsistencies, if that makes sense. Yeah. There's a massive division, I think, in ideology right now in general, among activists, among business folks in general, that there's two ways to go about any of these situations, radical change or incremental progress. And I definitely think both of those have to be held in juxtaposition with each other. And we ought to talk and flesh out the details of what a radical shift in our businesses would look like to be more sustainable, but at the same time, reducing a barrier of entry for people who do want to participate is so important. Definitely. Though it's difficult, especially now in 2020, to have conversations about things that are difficult, primarily from the perspective that a lot of times people aren't willing to budge. If you talk to your parents, we've seen this in America a lot since there's a lot of stuff happening recently, but the Black Lives Matter movement, for instance, is a big, big topic of conversation here. And if one person doesn't agree with the other person, odds are nine times out of 10, they're not going to change their ways. So to segue back to the climate change uh, sort of conversation, how have you gone about changing people's minds who don't actually want to change their minds? Mm. Great question. So... I would say that as a communicator, you have to speak to what that person cares about. Now, you know, we're, we care about the issues. We're passionate about the issues, right? Um, we stake so much of our identities on, like, fighting for the causes that we care about. And that often leads to the presumption that other people will care about the same issues for the same reasons. Um, I had a very clear example of this. You know, you guys talked about going plant-based. That was definitely my first kind of uh, stand, my activist stand when I was young. 
And so I told my parents, made a grand, you know, announcement that I was going vegetarian. And I was about 11 at the time. Um, for background, my dad is French and he's also a chef. Mm. And so to come out as a vegetarian was um, almost like a betrayal of so much of his culture and what he cared about. And like his real way of connecting with us as children was um, to cook for us. And that was the thing that brought the family together. So in many ways, he felt that I was rejecting um, something much more than, you know, food, but, but his identity and his culture. And that meant that vegetarianism um, was a really heated topic of conversation. It, you know, pervaded every conversation around the dinner table for not just like a few months, but abs like years, years of, of my life. And I didn't realize um, until I started working at Impossible Foods, this company that makes meat from plants. Um, I didn't realize that I was taking the wrong route and trying to convince him or trying to find some kind of like shared ground right I was arguing it from the perspective of why I cared about the issue you know it was like moral grounds and like ethics and like it, it's something that's very hard to uh, debate on right because it's very slippery right mm -hmm. um, and it's very open it open to interpretation and yet when I started working with impossible foods I started doing the research into you know the environmental impact of the meat industry um, the health impacts of you know a high meat consumption diet and the moment I started speaking from that objective lens, not from a very highly charged emotional place, but from, you know, here are just the facts and statistics that I can actually back up. We were for the first time in my life able to find some kind of common ground. And he's like, oh, okay, I get it now. Right. And um, this was a really important lesson for me growing up because I realized that communicating is understanding what your audience values, understanding what they care about. And back to this point of polarization, like so often what gets in the way is that we only see the differences between us. We don't draw it back to the baseline values. And like, ultimately there are some very universal values that we all can kind of rally behind and care about around um, our families, around our communities, um, around, you know, contribution. It's very easy to understand kind of what's going wrong in society and, and why we need to all show up from a place of that, those universal kind of values. So I think starting there is really, really effective. And I would say that uh, universally, the most compelling argument is this one around children. And this has been my experience working um, with corporates, and but also working with family members who might have very different perspectives. It's drawing it back to, you know, what is, what is the world that you want to pass on to your children? And, and what do you want what kind of future do you want your children to inherit? Um, and what's been really striking is that in every conversation with a group of executives, when asked what their catalyst was for caring about climate change, consistently it has been their kids coming home at the end of the day and saying, you know, mom, dad, auntie, uncle, whoever it is, what are you doing about the climate crisis? And what are you doing to safeguard my future? So there is real, real power in that and stripping it back to what makes us human and what makes us brilliant and what makes us connected um, is a really, really good way about going about what can otherwise be very divisive conversations. Yeah. Communication skills, are, I think, are integral and it's it's a learned process. I think many of us have this assumption that we can just speak to someone once and then everything will change. And I believe uh, there's a statistic that runs around uh, among politicians that basically says you have to hear my name seven times before you even know who I am. 
And I think mm-hmm. the same is true of these difficult conversations. It's not a one-off break in event and yeah. everything will change. It's you have to have a continuous conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's where it can kind of be pessimistic at times. And this is where I want to turn this conversation to something that you've written and also spoken a lot about, which is a level of eco-pessimism within our generation. How, how have you gone about educating or just spreading information to uplift people when they feel like it can be such a difficult fight? Mm, this is a great question. All of your questions are brilliant. Um, so there is a, an epidemic that we're not talking about, which is the rise of climate anxiety and eco-anxiety and young people really, really despairing about the state of the world and not necessarily in a way that rallies action or incites activism, but in a way that is shutting young people down. Um, When I talk to my parents about, you know, how they used to envision the future, it was one of flying cars and disease being eradicated and very utopian kind of vision. When I talk to young people now, it's incredibly dystopian. Like it's something out of a Hollywood blockbuster of cities being underwater, of food system collapse, um, of, you know, mass migration. In essence, what all of the scientists are telling us um, is going to happen if we don't, you know, create a transformation in our society to avoid climate breakdown. So young people as early as 11 years old are telling me, well, I don't think I'll go to university because what's the point of pursuing a career on an unlivable planet? Mm. I've had 13 year olds tell me I don't want to have children because it would be irresponsible to bring them into this world. So young people are not just anxious, they're despairing, they're fearful. And, you know, there's research showing that over, you know, 75% of young people in the UK are experiencing this kind of eco-anxiety, which a few years ago didn't exist as a term, but now is like a, a researched area. Um, so young people are really, really suffering. But there's a fine line. So we talk at Force of Nature around eco-anxiety and ecophobia. So eco-anxiety can be thought of as the kind of emotions and feelings that wake us up to the problems, right? Um, Fear, anxiety, um, overwhelm, frustration, anger. Ecophobia is kind of a close cousin, but also an even more niche part of this, which is our feeling of powerlessness in the face of these issues. So that's when we subscribe to some of the stories we were talking about earlier, of being too small to make a difference, of the system being too broken to create meaningful change. Now, in my own path of activism, For a long time, I experienced this kind of eco-anxiety, and it was something that I thought I had to beat into submission. And yet I realized that it was the perfectly natural human response to the state of the world. And in fact, rather than trying to suppress those feelings, I had to give them oxygen and I had to create space for them. Whereas ecophobia, this feeling of powerlessness, it doesn't help anyone, right? <laughs> um, it just causes you to shut down rather than want to step up to solve some of these challenges. So we encourage young people to really come to terms with their anxieties about the state of the world, but to meet those anxieties with a sense of agency. You know, anxiety must be met with, okay, but what can I do to take action on this issue? Um, it's really difficult because 
you know, society teaches us that there is such thing as good emotions and bad emotions. And we kind of, there's this overarching narrative, you know, positive psychology of having to be your best self, of having to be happy all the time, of of having to be perfect, right? We see that perpetuated on social media. It's a very rose-tinted window into everyone's lives. And in many ways, we've lost the spaces um, to grieve. We've lost the spaces for collective um, grieving and for people to come to terms with some of those darker emotions. A lot of psychologists, a lot of climate psychologists would say that more people need to be experiencing eco-anxiety because when we experience eco-anxiety, it means that we're no longer numbing ourselves to the state of the world. But you can't just stay in that space. You have to find a way to vacillate between different emotions and to vacillate from a place of, oh my God, these problems are overwhelming and they're huge. And also, you know, I know what I can do about them. And I have a real clear sense of what I want to take action on. So a lot of the work that we do is supporting young people to map their mental and emotional landscapes, to be able to talk about with fluency, talk about how they're feeling and why they're feeling a certain way, get some, get some objective distance from some of those feelings so they don't become who you are. Um, and in that, help them get a real clarity of cause. So instead of spreading themselves thin across lots of different issues and this kind of clicktivism or hashtag activism, diving deep into a challenge that really ignites something in them so that they have both the internal activism and outer activism um, to be able to create change in a very meaningful way. Definitely. You know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that information is useless unless it's transferable. And through that same token, stress and anxiety is useless unless it materializes into real world change. And too frequently, especially now, have I seen people who are anxious or are concerned about a social issue post something on Instagram, say, I'm content, Mm. back away, and then think that they're doing good for the world. Um, It's very much virtue signaling. And it's also interesting to, to your point, to see the intersections between so many different movements right now. Definitely. Because what you're talking about with eco-anxiety is so central to our mental health crisis that we're dealing with. I also think it ties into a loneliness crisis, which the UK is doing a far better job at addressing, if I may add, than, than America. Um, and so many other things. I mean, the, the intersection, it's important, I think, for anyone listening to recognize that when we face issues like these that are so pervasive and tie into almost every single aspect of our life, it takes a large overhaul of how we're working. And it also takes a large systematic overhaul. And those held together can sometimes feel like a daunting task. But if you take those micro steps, as you're saying, and truly dissect it from the psychological perspective, which I think is perfect, it can be much more effective and then also much more empowering because the locus of control or onus of control goes back within you instead of external to a policymaker or a business, which exactly can be yeah. very hard to deal with. And to that point, and to tie it kind of into a question to rope you in here, you have pushed more into Fortune 500 companies uh, as of late and have been doing a lot of wonderful speaking, consulting. What gives you faith that these businesses will actually do as they say they do, instead of what you were mentioning with greenwashing? Yeah, (laughs) this is a really difficult one um, because it's something that I'm so aware of. As someone who has 
been immensely frustrated by the state of greenwashing and how pervasive it is in big companies, um, I realize how careful a line it is you know, to ensure that I'm not being a vehicle for that greenwashing, right? And that I'm not just being given lip service to say, okay, here's our token young activist who's kind of giving permission um, to what we're doing, right? And condoning it. So it's something that I'm very, very sensitive to. And I would say that, you know, young people are sick of greenwashing and we're sick of commitments that are made far enough into the future that they require no immediate change today. And so that's generally the challenge that I bring into, you know, organizations that I work with. I find it very difficult to work with organizations who are unwilling uh, to admit fault and are unwilling to recognize their own history. So generally, if I walk into an organization that says, okay, here are all of these brilliant initiatives that we're starting. Um, and here are all of these awesome commitments we've made to be net zero and whatever. If I just hear that without acknowledgement of here's how not only we've been part of the problem, but architects of the problem, here's how we've contributed um, to the dire state of the planet. If I don't hear that, and if I don't hear that reflected on an individual level, then I have to question the intentions of that company and why I'm there in the first place. So for me, it, authenticity comes from a willingness to admit fault and a willingness to admit vulnerability. And usually that is reflected on an individual leadership basis. Um, you can tell a lot about the culture of a company based on the person who's kind of at the helm of the ship, right? And generally, my experience has been that, you know, working within these big multinationals, which might have a really bad reputation from the outside, within them, they have so many incredible people who have lots of positive intention, but they themselves feel crushed by the bureaucracy of the system, or they feel so beholden to the system, which tells them that delivering, you know, bottom line for their shareholders is more important than their stakeholders. They're so subscribed to that narrative that they find it near impossible to look outside of it and to realize what they can actually change within themselves and within the organization. And that makes it really, really difficult because you're having to get them to stop drinking their own Kool-Aid basically. Mm -hmm. um, so they can objectively see, oh, wow, I'm part of the problem. And this speaks to the wider challenge with the climate crisis, right? It's very confronting to appreciate that we're all contributing to the challenge. And that's why it makes it so unique. Um, but with that, I would say that there is an invitation. And I think often we talk about the climate crisis from the perspective of what we're doing wrong and how we're part of the problem. And there's this eco-fascist kind of narrative of humans being a plague on the planet, which we could have a whole other conversation about. Um, but you have to meet that with the invitation, which is to recognize that as much as the climate crisis is the greatest threat we've ever faced uh, in human history, it's also the biggest opportunity, Right. Even without the climate crisis, we're not in a good place. You know, there is so much inequality. There's so much terrible distribution of wealth. There is this incredible environmental destruction that we realize we're not in a good spot. And so the climate crisis gives us the urgency, gives us the need to mobilize, to deliver on a future, to deliver on a planet that serves us all. So I think... In answer to your question, by way of a very long-winded answer, um, intention 
is ultimately where you have to start, right? If you're trying to gauge whether someone's legit or whether someone's just trying to greenwash, you have to draw back to why they're in the room and to what extent they're willing to kind of own up to their own fallibility and their own mistakes made in the past. I think it also, you have to trust your gut, I'd imagine, a ton Yes, in a lot of it is gut trusting. <laughs> and I know that I make mistakes and I have to kind of accept that as well. Um, because, and it's really difficult, right? Like, I think we all subscribe to narratives. And I subscribe to stories that I'm not even very conscious of. Um, and the same thing is very much true within these big companies and these big organizations is that they're all subscribed to a narrative. And oftentimes they truly believe that incrementalism is enough. Mm -hmm. So you often have to, you know, back to this point around eco-anxiety to, to work with a company, you often have to make them a little bit scared (laughs) and a little bit anxious and you have to allow them to really own up to how much of an emergency we're in. Because if you try to move straight ahead to, okay, what are we doing in the future? Um, You're just plastering over the underlying issue, right? Which is a lack of acknowledgement. Or as you said, a kind of disavow that happens when you point to other people and you see this in companies where they'll point to politicians and say, well, it's not our job, right? It's up to them. You'll see young people doing it. Whereas where we say it's not up to us, it's up to businesses. You see your policymakers saying, well, it's up to the people who elect us into power. Across the board, universally, we all need to wake up to our responsibility and we all need to wake up to our role. You know, none of us is innocent living in, you know, privileged lifestyles. Um, You know, the people in in North America and Australia and Europe, you know, we're contributing to the problem and the very people who are contributing least to the problem, largely in the global south, are the ones who are going to be experiencing the impacts of the climate crisis more than anyone else and are already experiencing those impacts, right? There are young people in the Maldives who are losing their homes. There are kids in Bangladesh who are receiving flooding year on year, right? And so we have a responsibility, not just to the world, but to ourselves to find our common humanity, to wake that up within us and to realize that as much as we are part of the problem, we are all part of the solution and we have a really exciting invitation before us to actually be change makers and and to deliver a world that is better for our children. When do we know we've done enough? <laughs> That's such a good question. <laughs> <laughs> it's loaded. It's not it's not even an easy one, but I think there is no such thing as enough. And that's yeah. what's really difficult about working in this space, right? I think by way of public messaging, we speak in very blanket terms, right? We talk about having 10 years to solve the climate crisis. Mm -hmm, The reality is there are some climate tipping points, right. That have already been triggered, right. Um, Systems that have been triggered where natural ecosystems or really precious parts of our planet are, are kind of in an exponential um, decline that we can't actually stop. And this is really difficult because there is no definitive point where we can say, okay, and I read a different article every week, which is like, okay, we need to mobilize within the next six months or we have the next 10 years or we have the next 15 years. There's no right answer. And I would say there's never going to be enough, right? There's never going to be enough that you can do as an individual. Um, But what you can do is look within yourself 
and subscribe to being in service of something that's much bigger than any one of us as individuals and act enough to be able to look back on our lives, hopefully when we all grow to old age, and know that we did everything in our power to act on the issues that we really cared about. And I don't think there's anyone who can objectively say this is enough or this is not enough. And that's not something that we can really subscribe to. It's very much something personal that you have to look to within yourself. And I think that's where you can really find a lot of the answers. I will say that there's a real trap for young people who are in the activism space and who are trying to create change when we're constantly hounded by this feeling of not doing enough. And I know that this, like I had a bit of an emotional breakdown last year um, when the fires were raging back home in Australia. And I was doing so much kind of like mental gymnastics because I think I'm someone who is very, like has created a persona of being very positive and optimistic and that's who I am, but it's one part of who I am, right? But I was so attached to that that I was not allowing myself to grieve about what was happening back home. And I was not willing to really confront it um, and own up to it. And I, I felt really guilty. I felt a lot of shame of not being there. I felt shame on behalf of civilization. I felt guilty that I wasn't doing enough. And yet none of us on an individual level can ever do enough, right? The moment I assume the responsibility of the world, the moment I assume the responsibility of solving climate change, that's a sure way to burn out. And it's a sure way of making yourself kind of useless to the world um, because you're doing it from this place of savior complex, right? You're doing it ultimately from a kind of place of ego. And I know that sounds kind of paradoxical, right? Because you're trying to change a problem outside of yourself. Um, but the moment you do it, not attached to a specific outcome, not attached to a specific expectation of, yes, solving the climate crisis. Um, and the moment you shift from that place to just doing it because you check into that internal radar and because you know it's the right thing to do in the present moment, that's what's going to be enough. But there is every chance that we will fail to solve the climate crisis. There's every chance that not enough people will step up, not enough people will act. And I have to go to work every day being okay with that and knowing that. And it's a really difficult pill to swallow, but it's something that each and every one of us needs to do or else we're going to drive ourselves completely mad. <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place in this scenario because mm. hope is a very powerful idea, I think. And to be hopeful, or I think for many of us and myself included, there's a thought in the back of my mind of what if we're doing all of this for nothing and the time to shift has already passed. Right? What if this a massive surge is just too much? And that's where I think, I mean, in Joey and I's experiences, or I'll actually just speak for myself, but we've both had experiences with anxiety, panic attacks, and the likes. And a lot of that comes from this deep-seated feeling of, oh my God, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. How do I control anything? I think what you're saying here is so definitively important because it, it recognizes the state of this world, but also at the same time demonstrates that, hey, shit might be going crazy right now, but at least we can do something so we can alleviate that feeling when we're on, say, our deathbed, which is a very important thought. Um, yeah, a bit of a bit of a tangent, but to, to come back to uh, what you're working on right now with Force of Nature, 
what is the the end goal in mind? I know you have a podcast, you're doing online classwork. What what are you trying to to start with this initiative? Yeah, so back to um, the reason why I do this work and and the belief that the threat even greater than the climate crisis is this feeling of powerlessness in the face of it. What we're trying to do is mobilize society en masse um, with the ep- emphasis on working with young people um, to realize their potential to create change and to step up rather than shut down in the face of these issues. Um, you know, young people have so many, I mean, we all do, but young people especially have so many pressures on us, right? We go through a standardized education system that teaches us to be a set of averages. Um, We're in a society that is, you know, subscribes to the the narrative of capitalism and limitless growth with finite resources. Um, We go on social media and we scroll for five minutes and feel absolutely debilitated by the experience because we're only ever seeing very narrow windows into other people's lives. We go on Twitter and we're unable to have comprehensive, holistic conversations with people about why these issues matter, about, you know, to find common grounds because we only have 220 characters or 280 characters to communicate what we care about. So there are all of these influences on young people that encourages encourage us to be our smallest selves um, and to disengage from the challenges and, you know, Activism for a long time has been painted through this lens of kind of token efforts. For the climate crisis, for the longest time, we were told that all we had to do was change our light bulbs. Um, You know, there's this whole kind of movement of like coffee cup activism, right, which is kind of doing the bare minimum and then swathing yourself in the assurance that you've done your bit. Understandably, young people are freaked out, they're anxious, they're overwhelmed, and they feel powerless. And so what our mission is, why we exist is to mobilize young people to step up in the face of those challenges. And in doing so, to realize their potential, realize their power um, by existing at the junction of the problem they want to solve and their passions. So with all the research we've done, we've recognized that a really critical part of this is not just helping young people get a lot of focus on the problems that they want to solve, whether that's microplastics from the fashion industry or prison reform or food waste, Um, but to show up to solve those problems according to where they're uniquely gifted. So drawing back to the education system, I was very lucky in that I had an unconventional education experience and I learned from a really young age where my place in this kind of system was. I learned what my sweet spot was, what I loved doing. I have so many friends who've been through the education system and have left it feeling really stupid because they haven't had an opportunity to realize where they're most gifted. And they go into a society that doesn't value diversity, that doesn't value our differences or, or where we're uniquely placed. And so we help them show up to solve the things they care about according to those gifts and talents, whether they're musicians, communicators, mathematicians, gardeners, whatever it is that they love doing and that ignite something within them. And so we're trying to mobilize not just a few thousand, but a generation of young people to really step up, take ownership and to begin to shift from a place of, you know, us inheriting this great, enormous burden to actually, how is this an invitation to create the world that we do want? 
you know, things aren't working right now and we have an opportunity, we have a responsibility, critically we have a role to deliver on that future. And so that's what we're trying to do and we're doing that through online classrooms, we're doing that through communicating, we're doing that through consultancy and with big companies where we create these places of intergenerational exchange where young people can begin to influence the very systems that we're trying to change. To round things out, what would you recommend to those people who are sitting right now listening to this or watching this that are interested in getting started but don't know exactly where to start? Where should they start? So I would say to dial into your feelings. In the ravine between wanting to make a difference and feeling frustrated by an issue or getting upset about something and wanting to take action and taking that first step in the ravine between wanting to make a difference and taking action, live these stories that we subscribe to, right? Stories of not being enough, um, stories of not being smart enough, of not being experienced enough, stories of it not being up to us, but it being up to someone else. The way we begin to circumnavigate those stories, which all of us subscribe to, is to dial into those feelings. And this is what I find very special about young people and it's what I find so compelling about Greta Thunberg is this kind of moral absolutism. It's getting rid of some of the the gray area, which sometimes is necessary to just say, morally, I know this to be right and I know this to be wrong and acting on those emotions. So I would encourage anyone listening to dial into what makes them most upset, what creates that anxiety, what creates that frustration, what ignites your anger and then how do you alchemize those emotions into action? And how you do that is showing up to solve that problem that you've isolated according to where you just show up naturally. Like do the thing that comes as easily as breathing. When you can marry those two things together, you will show up in the world, you will create impact, you will make a difference, and you'll actually enjoy doing it along the way. You won't burn out because you're just reacting to the challenges. You'll be sustained by your passion for not just being part of the problem, but also driving the solution. That's great advice for activism, but I also think it's great life advice in general. You should probably <laughs> assess every once in a while. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we, we've definitely put you through the ringer with these questions, but as a, as a token of our appreciation, please let us roll out the red carpet virtually, of course. <laughs> Where can the people find you and all the work that you're doing right now? Thank you. Yeah, so you can find Force of Nature at forceofnature.xyz on Instagram, also forceofnature.xyz if you Google us. Um, and then you can find me at Clover Hogan on all of the platforms, save TikTok. I'm yet to be a convert um, <laughs> to that one. Um, but yeah, please do reach out. We're here to support and mobilize. Um, yeah, so thank you so much for having me. It was absolutely awesome. And I feel like we could have gone for many more hours. Definitely. Definitely. Well, we love when that happens. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this week's episode. We will see you next week with another fantastic conversation. Clover, thanks again. We'll see you soon. Peace. Peace.